Speech pitch by Iska Sack. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Speech Pitch. I am Thomas Roland. And I am Francis Teixeira, and we will be your hosts for this episode. Today, we have the pleasure to be speaking with Pascal Fung. Thank you very much for accepting the invitation to join us. We are really excited to have you here. Thank you. Pascal, you are the director of the Center for Artificial Intelligence Research at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and a professor at the Departments of Electrical and Computer Engineering and Computer Science and Engineering at the same university. And you are an expert on the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council. You're also a visiting professor of the Central Academy of Fine Arts in Beijing. You come from a family of artists, so it seems that arts is a very important part of your life. And our question is, how does this influence your perspective when working with AI systems? How does art affect my perspective on AI systems? I think my early childhood fascination with science fiction um, really motivated me to choose to go into the area of speech and language processing. So now consider AI and machine learning and all that. I was motivated to build robots. I think people working in AI in general have this futuristic vision of technology, right? I mean, people who work in research in general have a futuristic vision of what we do because by definition, research is, you know, making things or discovering things that are not there yet. So in particular in AI, I think people who chose this area have a vision of the future. I think it's always influenced by science fiction and movies and so on. I think that's the influence. And the creative side of what we do is certainly linked to the creative side of art and so on. I was trained when I was young in the arts, and that's a very creative kind of training. I always have to explain to people, you know, this left brain, right brain thing. And for me, it's just part of one brain. Like I don't switch on one side and switch off the other side when I do it. And I do think that it's like mathematical training, art training when you're young. It's just kind of a, a training of your brain. So your brain is wired differently if you had mathematical training or if you didn't. And your brain is wired differently if you had artistic training and if you didn't. So that's just part of my, my outlook. I don't know how to explicitly analyze my own brain to tell you like how it influenced me. I think that's the really neuroscientist and cognitive scientist work. But it certainly has informed me in the way I look at research. Maybe the topic I choose is always different. I get, I'm not very interested in incremental kind of work. I've always wanted to go for, let's say, paradigm changing kind of research. I remember when I first came into speech and language, you know, especially in language, late 80s, early 90s, it was like the statistical machine learning revolution for natural language processing. And then like a last decade, we had this deep learning approach for uh, AI. And all these were like really big paradigm changes. And I think I was very happy to embrace these kind of changes. I get bored with status quo. I really can't answer this question very rationally. And recently what I've been doing in terms of our projects is really to use AI as a new medium of art creation. So that is something that interests me deeply. It's very challenging how to use AI as a medium for art. That can be a totally different conversation, by the way. 
So actually, that was uh, our second question on this topic. Was there anything that technology and AI can do for the arts? So if you want to talk a little bit about that, we would be glad to listen. Sure. So let's look at art. Uh, historically, what have we seen in terms of new forms of art? So during different periods of time in human history, people have attempted different using different medium. So there's medium, like whether you use brushes, whether you use oil, canvas, whether you use ink, dancers use their bodies to express, uh, musicians use instruments or even use the vocal sound as an instrument. So there are different mediums for art. So that's the first part that AI comes into play. So like digital art, people use digital medium for art. So today we have all these kind of AI algorithms. So AIR obviously means that we will use AI algorithms as a medium to do art. So using uh, algorithms to, as a medium, that is the new form of art called AI art. Now there's a second part of the equation, which is what is art? So I have a pretty radical proposal and I would like to propose that for something to be called AI art, first of all, the medium has to be using AI obviously, but also for it to be art, just like all art forms, it has to be something that nobody has done before. So today, for example, you, you use AI as filters in, uh, in cameras. If you ask people, is that art? Most people will say it's not. And uh, when you use like a, a style transfer in your camera, if you ask people, is that art? Most people will say it's not. But when it first came out, like the very first AI style transfer, there was a painting that was auctioned, right? So when it's something that nobody has done before, there's a chance it can be considered art. Of course, art has another subjective point of view, which is the aesthetic value. And that is a totally different discussion. But I would say using AI to create something that nobody has done before could be a form of AI art. Now, there's another thing, which is that how do you use AI? So for example, artists who paint, they don't necessarily make the brushes, right? Musicians don't necessarily make the violins or, or the instruments. So AI artists don't necessarily have to like write the AI algorithms. Right? They don't have to be like researchers, AI algorithm developers even, but they have to be able to use AI algorithms in a meaningful way. And that involves skills. So, you know, musicians use the instrument, they have to learn the skill of using it. So what does it mean by using AI with skill? That's also subject to discussion today. As AI technology keeps evolving, we keep having new things coming out. Now we have all this deep fake stuff that computer generation of image, of voice, of everything, everything you want can be generated by AI. Then uh, what can the artist do, right? So if the artist uses this kind of technology in a meaningful way and create something that is both revolutionary, like nobody has seen it before and aesthetic, then in general, people will accept that as art. And so that's like really virgin territory. I think today we really have not seen a lot of groundbreaking AI art that's both aesthetic and groundbreaking and really novel. That is a new territory for art exploration. And that is a question for artists, really. It's not really a question for AI researchers or for AI algorithm developers. I'm hoping that when artists become active in creating AI art, they will also push the development of AI algorithms. In other words, I would like to see new AI algorithms developed, driven by artistic expressions, and such algorithms then can be repurposed 
to benefit other parts of the society. That is actually uh, one of the objectives of art in my personal pursuit. So it was, art should also benefit society. Some artists would think that it's just about expressing themselves. To me, I think art has this additional sort of role of benefiting, making life better for people or inspiring people to think and so on. It will also inspire the development of technologies such as AI in the future. Okay, thank you. And in this podcast, we really like to learn a bit more about the person we interview. And you just mentioned that you've been trained in art when you were young. So obviously we are curious about it. So can you tell us a bit more about that? What kind of art you were doing when you were young? <laughs> okay. So my parents were both trained as fine artists, like painters. So when I was young, it was like compulsory daily training in terms of Chinese calligraphy and watercolor sketch, all those kind of art skills. And I learned dancing. In secondary school, I learned to sing, but that's not the most important part of my training. But because my parents are visual artists, they sort of enforce the visual artist side of training. I really didn't like it though as a child. Actually, that was the reason I became an engineer because I wanted to get away from that kind of compulsory parental training. I was dragged to museums all the time. So it did teach me to have a deep appreciation of art. I think that's quite important. So that is the visual art side of training. In terms of other performance art, I mentioned dance and I continue to learn dance, study dance as an adult. And that's why I'm also interested in performance art and to use AI in performance art. Thank you for sharing that with us. So now we'll change the topic a little bit. This year, you gave a talk at the Promoting Diversity in Signal Processing Workshop at ICASP, where you mentioned that your experience with healthcare encouraged you to focus more on empathetic AI. So we wanted to ask you, for you, what does it mean for an agent to be empathetic and what's the importance of having empathetic agents? Yeah, I would say that before 2015, I was very into the core technology and I wasn't really very interested in actual applications other than the startups I did. In particular, I wasn't that interested in healthcare applications of AI. And then 2015, I had a very big illness and I was hospitalized and operated upon and had to have treatments and so on. And throughout that experience, I uh, realized two things. One is that research uh, really contribute to saving people's lives. And my life was saved because of other people's medical research. And that was sort of a wake-up call. I published papers too, but what have I done to improve people's lives? I had this kind of an existential crisis about the direction of my research. Number two is that my personal experience, I was in contact with my doctors, surgeons, and nurses, and people who took care of me in the hospital. And I realized one of the most important thing they did for me and other patients was some kind of what they call in bedside manner, meaning how they talk to the patients. It's not just about giving you medicine. It's not just about operating on you. In fact, a lot of the things can be done by robots. I mean, how hard is it to have a robot to give you medicine every day? It's just not hard. But the one important, very important job of these people is that they come to talk to you. They encourage you. They soothe you. I, I went through many surgeries. Before my surgery, I was kind of scared, right? But they would try everything to soothe you, to make you feel good just a few seconds before they put you down. Why does it matter? 
mechanically or technically it didn't matter, but psychologically it mattered a lot to patients. I also discovered there's research on how playing music helps healing. So there's entire emotional side of medical science that I wasn't aware until then. And then I realized, you know, if you go to a dentist who does something to you, I mean, I remember the dentist was telling me, this is what's going to happen. And you're going to feel this way. Just knowing that this dentist is human and that he could feel what I feel is reassuring. I mean, a lot of this work can be done by robots, but as a patient, you want this kind of human touch. And the most important part of the human touch is this empathy, that they can empathize how you feel. They can tell you how you are going to feel, right? This kind of empathy. And I realized then that in my many decades of research in dialogue systems, in conversational AI systems, we never talked about that. We always talk about task-oriented, right? Task completion. We never thought about the emotional side and the empathetic side of machines. And today, of course, you can see all the uh, virtual agents we use, including like virtual assistants, they all try to sound kind of humorous or agree with you. So since then, I think the mainstream already accepted that such agents must have empathy. For example, I remember like Microsoft Compositional Agents, they have something called empathetic module. So that's already accepted since then that we need to have such a module for conversational agents. And I think if we want to have robots to help us, help the elderly, help the sick, help the disabled or help children, then empathy, help humans actually, let's say. If we want to have machines help humans in any way, to interact with humans in any meaningful way, we cannot not have the empathy module in these machines. I see you nodding. So that's how you are expressing empathy towards me, right? And we humans do that all the time. We smile and that's just the essential part of human to human communication. So likewise, we need to have that part in human machine communication. Okay, so you like briefly mentioned it, but if you have really to define it, what would be the necessary traits for an agent to be considered empathetic? So to be empathetic for machines, I basically broke it down to two parts. One is to be empathetic, it needs to recognize our emotions. It needs to be able to read our emotions from different signals, you know, from facial expressions, from tone of our voice, our body language, our uh, eye gaze, you know, everything humans use to read another person's emotion. So it needs to recognize our emotion, read our emotion. That's the first part. And then the second part of being empathy is the appropriate response. So when the uh, medical healthcare workers came to see the patients in their rooms, they, they ask you, how are you doing? Do you feel any pain? Apart from hearing your answers, they look at your expressions. Doctors and anesthetists look at your facial expressions to determine the level of pain you're experiencing, right? And then they execute the response, whether to give you more drugs or whether you need other kind of care. So that's like the response part. It's appropriate response part is part of being empathetic. So the response can be verbal or action or other things. And Verbal also means that not just the words that's chosen to be spoken, but also the expression, the emotion in the way you talk. So our robots need to speak with empathy, with compassion, with some kind of appropriate emotion as well. So these systems 
seem that they're very complex, right? Each, like the perceiving module is complex and the, then the feedback module is also complex and combining both of them is also probably very complex. So how well are these systems currently able to perform? So there are different approaches today, depending on where you're looking at research systems or commercial systems. So for dialogue systems, you also have this kind of commercial or, or research, right? So we have two main approaches today. One is the traditional like 30-year-old approach, which is modular, which is in a system, you have the speech recognition and the semantic decoding, you have emotion recognition, and then you have like hard mapping of emotions. And then you have this kind of either pre-designed responses given the emotion or probabilistic model, like given this emotion, what kind of remote response it should have, right? So that's kind of a modular approach. And most commercial systems use that, that kind of module approach because it's more controllable. You can change, you can design the way it's supposed to respond. And then you have this end-to-end -end neural conversational agent or chatbots, right? And that's end-to-end, -end, sequence to sequence. So you have conversation in, conversation out, conversation in, conversation out. And today we can actually, I, I have shown, I think I demo at one of the conferences, one of our text-based chatbots, meaning there's no speech in, speech out, but... You can imagine it's not hard to do that with speech, which is that when user express something just from the text alone, the machine can add the emoji automatically, meaning that it detects the emotion sentiment from the text alone. And then the machine will respond with additional emoji as well. So the generation of emoji is the way that the machine shows that, oh, yeah, I hear you, I hear you. So that's kind of the state of the art we have today. I think deploy systems today use a combination of the two, meaning neural network approaches and then this kind of modular design-based approaches, depending on how critical, how important, right? If it's just chat, um, we just keep chatting. <laughs> then it's usually for end-to-end -end neural approach. But if it's, again, if it's like trying to task-oriented, let's say, then it's a modular approach. I think both emotion recognition and appropriate emotion response are challenging research topics still. First of all, we can't agree on what categories of emotions do we have. There are they universal. Some of them are. Some of the primary emotions like happy, sad. I mean, that's universal because just look at all the babies from all around the world. They cry to express discomfort. They smile and they giggle right? So there are some of the primary emotions that are universal, and then there are some others that are cultural. And that remains to be a research challenge. And then it's also a challenge for humans. It's difficult for one human being to completely understand the emotional expression of another human being in another society. If you ever move to a foreign country, which I have done many times, before learning the local culture, you probably don't understand the emotional response readily or you cannot tell the nuance of the expressions. So that's also the human experience. Similarly for machine, it needs to learn the nuance of different cultures, different language, and different people. So um, requires more data, requires more annotation, and hopefully we can learn that in an unsupervised way in the future, in a multimodal way. But that's all topics of research, I think. The emotional side of human communication is very challenging and fascinating. In your answer, you briefly mentioned that you are experienced showcasing empathetic agents. And we are curious to know 
what the change you see when people interact with this system in contrast with interaction they have with no empathetic actions. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, the best example is when they interact with a chatbot that has emoji. So that is just more fun. They feel more understood. So why do we use emoji in our chat? It's because we can't express our emotion otherwise perfectly. So we feel like compelled, we must add emoji. I mean, at least 10, 15 years ago, we didn't have that. So human invented it because we felt compelled that we needed that to complete our emotions. So complete our communication chain. Similarly for these chatbots, we've done some tests where we ask people to look at DAO systems with or without emoji and then how they feel that they are understood. Some kind of human study. And I think from all our experiences that emoji helps in our person communication as well. So in chatbots, the evaluation would be how long a user interact with the chatbot. And I believe there are studies that have shown that if the chatbot is more empathetic, there's longer interaction. So the user just feels more uh, engaged and understood. Thank you. We know that robots that look very similar to humans, but not exactly alike, sometimes they look kind of creepy, right? Which is called the uncanny valley. And we yeah. wanted to know if there is such a thing as an uncanny valley for conversational agents. Well, it's a very good question. If you talk about voice, I don't think so. Because machine voice today can sound exactly like humans. So it's not half human. And I don't think we feel it's creepy when the machine sounds like machine. You know, there's a reason we find the Uncanny Valley visually creepy. It's a visual thing because I read somewhere, this is not my research, right? I read somewhere it's because we are biologically wired to fear death and corpse because that's just our evolutionary signal. Therefore, when we see a robot that looks almost human, but not human, it looks like a dead person or something. It triggers our biological response of dread and fear. But there's no such equivalent in sound, in voice. So you can have voice that sounds completely machine and completely human. And any, anywhere in between, I don't think people feel it's creepy. Unless you make it sound creepy, like humans can try to sound creepy in the dark or something. But that's a totally different thing. Now, so I don't think there's audio uncanny valley per se. Now, if we talked about conversational content, like you interact with a chatbot just by text and you think it's human because it's really, really fluent. And then uh, at the end, it's not human. Again, I think there, there's not uncanny valley per se, meaning that people are not going to get spooked. Oh, it's not human. That kind of reaction is not there. Again, because it's not visual. But there is an uncanny valley of performance when the machine makes all sorts of errors, like before the era of deep learning, right? All the machine translation errors and speech recognition errors, people kind of say, oh, that doesn't make sense. But, you know, that's machine error. It's very obvious to us when machine made an error before. Now we're actually in this uncanny valley of machine performance. It doesn't spook us but it draws us into believing it's a human. So when it makes an error, the error itself seems like a human error. Today we call in generative models, we call that hallucination. The error actually still makes human sense. So you don't know it's an error. The average user doesn't know it's a machine error. So it can be misleading, right? It can even be harmful because it's saying something like demeaning to you. 
So if I talk to my chatbot and it's starting saying random things, you know, oh, it's not working. But if it says something that's actually toxic or racist or sexist, but it's still very fluent, then I tend to believe it. If you want to talk about uncanny valley, that is the kind of uncanny valley or the danger zone. Because it sounds human, it's natural, but it's misleading or it's harmful. That's the uh, danger zone of our conversational AI today. Not, it's not uncanny. It's quite canny, actually. It's very human-like, but it's making mistakes or it's making harmful impact that it shouldn't be making. So that is the challenge for conversational AI systems. You mentioned that the model, when it's making mistakes, sometimes it just spills garbage. This is also something that's called model hallucination, right? When the model starts putting out information like of the data where it was trained on. Yeah, but the problem there is hallucination is hallucinating stuff that's not garbage though. Okay. Uh, because if it's garbage, it's not even hallucinating, right? Garbage is garbage. And then you can readily see that it's garbage. Hallucination is hallucinating untruthful things. And that is a big issue. Yeah. The continuation of the question was exactly about the issue. So it may create some data privacy concerns, I guess. So yes. our question was, in your view, what's the, the main issue here? And then are there measures to mitigate this? And is there an active effort to mitigate these problems? Yeah. I think our group published a survey paper on the phenomenon of hallucination in language. We didn't survey uh, the problem in image, but that's also an issue, right? The biggest problem with that is, you know, why do we have a hallucination? Let's go back to the root of hallucination today. It's because we have this very, very powerful language models that have learned everything under the sun that is to learn about human text, right? And then, you know, it can generate sequences of text that make a lot of sense. So you can use them in many, many NLP applications from summarization to machine translation, to conversational AI, to all kinds of generative tasks. And they do a good job of generating fluent tasks. But once in a while, they hallucinate something that shouldn't be there. So take the example of machine translation. It's very clear. Machine translation should translate the source faithfully into the target. But sometimes the translation adds something to it. For example, sometimes it will add even a framing bias just because it has seen it before. And when reader reads the translation, they don't know the original source. So they don't know that's the wrong translation, right? They don't know that it looks fluent and they trust it, but then the bias is there, framing bias to gender bias and so on. So these hallucinations are obviously harmful. And uh, I know cases where actually cause diplomatic crisis or violate some kind of law, or in many cases, it's just very, very offensive and hurtful. For example, racist and sexist hallucination, right? So there is indeed active effort in the research and the development world. So from both research and development, people working very hard on, on mitigating hallucination. So to mitigate that, there is also the very, very hard research problem of detecting hallucination. How do you know what is hallucination? What is not hallucination? Which part is hallucinated? Which part is not? So that detection is a major research area. How to measure? That's also another research area. And the third challenge, of course, once you detect, you 
actually, once you, you know how to detect it and you can measure it, the mitigation then follows naturally. Without the detection and measuring, you can't really mitigate. So it is an active research area. It's a new sort of challenge. We didn't have this problem like uh, 10 years ago, right? So now we have this new problem. So there's a very active research effort in this area to mitigate hallucination. It's also some new effort now in terms of image hallucination in language captioning. You know, you look at a video, you try to caption that into language. There can be also hallucination from image into the language and so on. So this is a new, um, new area of research focus for many people in the community, including my own group. And of course, companies like Meta and Google, they're all actively working in this area. So we've been talking about hallucination, and this usually occurs in what we call foundational language model and very large language model. And these are becoming more and more prominent and are somehow buzzword right now. So how could you explain this model to a non-expert and what are the benefits they bring? Depending on the level of the non-expert, the most generic way of describing this large language model is that it has seen almost all the text under the sun in that particular language, because they are usually one language. People are also developing multilingual models, but you can imagine it's trained from different languages. So anyway, the language model trained from text has seen our world, that it's a one kind of encoding of human knowledge in text. So it's just like encyclopedia or dictionaries. It's one form of encoding of human knowledge that has been expressed in represented in text. It's encoded in this language model. They are not just a tool for us to generate the next word based on the previous word. It's not just that. They are really encoding of human knowledge and human society. As such, if you prompt this language model, right? If you give it a hint, like a, what we call prompt, like beginning of a text, it will generate the subsequent test. In the way you can prompt it to generate any form of uh, human knowledge you want. It can generate translation, it can generate summarization, it can generate question answering, you can ask the question, you can answer you, and so on. So it is a form of encoding of human knowledge. And I always say that, you know, our societies, human societies are not perfect. We are a biased society. You know, we have racists. We have sexist. We have all kinds of toxic content on the internet, right? All kinds of inappropriate content, toxic content, harmful content. And the language model learns it all, right? It learns everything. And to me, it is a very powerful encoding of human language and human knowledge. So we use it, but just like all human knowledge, when we use it, we need to be mindful about how we use it. So I always advocate for mitigating this kind of harm downstream. Either you mitigate upstream, but upstream to what extent? You teach the humans to be less biased. You teach the kids to be less biased. You actually get involved in the human society, right? That's really the source of everything. Or downstream, meaning that when you use these language models for downstream tasks, such as translation, summarization, so on, there you, mit you mitigate. It is not, I would say, advisable to go into the language model, try to kind of change its parameters in some way to make the language model is sort of sanitize the language model to make it harm-free because we don't know how to do that. We don't know how to uh, sanitize the language model with, without breaking its uh, encoding of the knowledge in general. 
So uh, I advocate that we actively mitigate and sanitize downstream and upstream teach humans advocate for a more fair and equitable society. That's difficult, but that's what we're trying to do. And also I would say that different language models, depending on the training data, reflects different values because human knowledge includes our human values. And there's a huge discussion on about intercultural variances in terms of values. And that is, again, another discussion. So how do you decide what to mitigate? That is a hard problem. It's a hard humanist problem. And should it be engineers who mitigate? You know, if I work on conversational AI, is it up to me to decide what I should allow and not allow in my hallucination and so on? Staying on large language model. So you mentioned they are trained on a very, very large amount of data and they are really growing exponentially. Does this mean that we are getting closer to some sense of human capabilities? Human capabilities of what? That's always my question. In some sense, they exceed human capabilities. I mean, it can translate language much better than the average human being, right? It can translate 200 languages like Meta's latest project can translate 200 languages simultaneously in a fraction of a second. So in some case, in some ways, machines already exceed the human capabilities in any single area it's doing. Otherwise, why do we even bother with using machines? We wouldn't use machines if it doesn't exceed human capabilities in that particular area or save our effort or save our time. We wouldn't use machines. So it has already. But I think your question is whether it's approaching the expert capability. So again, depending on the area, I think a lot of machine translation has already approached expert capability. It's just not very good in terms of uh, translating languages that are low resource, you know, not many people use it or like very rare. In other areas, summarization, certainly expert. Conversational AI, um, I don't know whether experts to chat with you forever and ever. Nobody does that. Nobody is willing to take that job. So again, these are very narrowly defined like NLP applications. So in, in many areas, it has approached, exceeded average human performance and approach expert human performance. Now, we recently had this project where we trained the machine to answer ethical questions, ethical quandary questions, where the questions are not asking for factual answers and it's not asking for yes or no answers. And we were interested in pushing the limit, like pushing the envelope, let's say it's not the limit of conversational AI system to see whether it can answer uh, such questions. And turns out it can. It's approaching expert performance. It's not there yet, but it's able to provide like, for example, the classic trolley question, right? It's able to say, according to this view, it's, you know, stick on into that view. But that's based on training data that we generated from these large language models. So the question is not whether machines can perform at a human level. It's really, can machines learn at the human level? That's the question we should ask today. Because today we rely on a lot of supervised data, but like language model is not supervised, so it's great. But like uh, we still prompt these language models for training data for question answering system and so on. So it's not learning at the human level. So the question, real question is that when can machines learn like humans do? We don't learn things necessarily in the supervised way, and we don't really consume a lot of text data with annotations to learn. So the interest question is, how can machines learn, learn at the human level? 
as you mentioned, this very large model are like exceeding human capabilities. And if we go slightly deeper, there is some recent discussion about uh, Google engineers who claimed uh, Google Lambda, the language model for dialogue system, is sentient. As an expert on the topic, what is your view on this discussion? My view, very simple. He's crazy. And I think he got fired. He needs mental health help. That's all. Um, no rational person working on these systems would think it's sentient. We share your opinion because I think we understand more or less how this kind of system work and we know why the system couldn't really be sentient. But can we ask you to explain why can't the model be sentient? Because it's not magic. It's not magic. We can explain every single step of the algorithm, how it's working, right? If you can explain it, it's not magic. It's mechanical in that sense. Therefore, it's not sentient. People do complain that once you understand how things work, the magic is gone. So there are people who want to believe in the magic and uh, they want to believe in the mystical side of these kind of machines. I'm actually more interested in why people want to always want to think that machines are sentient. Like why is that even a discussion? Why is that even a debate? You know, like 10, 20 years ago when we work on these machines, nobody had any debate about whether they're sentient or not. You know, like in the 90s, all the uh, customer helpline uh, in the US already was uh, done by machines. You know, you call a helpline, it's like, how may I help you, blah, blah, blah. And people know those are machines. There was no such debate about sentient call center machines. I think, again, it's like human imagination. When it's the performance is approaching human level, then people have this kind of imagination or need to think that it might be sentient because the performance is so good that it can only be sentient, right, to delay people. I think this is the cause of all this discussion about sentient because when you call, like, say, an airline that books ticket for you, people are like, okay, that's a machine. I can sort of imagine what it does, right? If you use a search engine, it gives you the answers. Nobody ever argued that the search engines are sentient. They don't know exactly how it works, but it's not doing uh, something that, that cannot be imagined. It's just when the performance of something that has reached a level, you know, the, the voice sounds so human-like, and then the answers are so uncannily human, then people enter into this, maybe the uncanny valley of sentient. So they start to feel, you know, people have this need to feel that it's sentient. Like, we need to believe in magic, right? Like there are people who watch a movie. Uh, everybody knows it's a movie, but you still get spooked. I can never watch horror movies because I'm scared. And I know it's a movie. I still cannot watch it. So elicit some kind of sentiment in us. So that's a human nature. So maybe some of these uh, chatbots elicit that kind of reaction in some people. We just need to let them know it's a chatbot, it's not human. We do have the responsibility to let people know though. It's like me teaching kids, you know, that's just a movie, don't worry, don't worry. The world is not coming to an end. So that we do need to let people know this is a machine talking and it's not a human being. So um, the growing interaction between humans and AI systems that we have been discussing so far has been creating these ethical concerns in recent years. So when talking about responsible AI, you have said that human values need to be introduced into the AI systems and particularly in foundational models. I think you've talked a little bit about what is responsible AI, but how can we implement human values in the development of these new technologies? 
It's a very, very interesting question.、Uh, it's a challenge. I think the fall a summit on responsible AI, and it's focused on the science and technology of responsible AI. It's、uh, co-sponsored by AAAE. As you can imagine, how do we implement the values right into our systems? That's the key question. So it's the operationalizing responsible AI. It's not just talking about our values, identifying the values, but actually how to implement it. So,、um, you know, as scientists and engineers, we look for practical solutions, but we also look for sustainable solutions. So it's not one goal. The question of defining human values is not an engineering question, right? Defining human values, let's say, not defining them but identifying them from our societies, it requires the work of ethicists, philosophers, social scientists. Anthropologists, psychologists, educators—all this humanist research—in、uh, collaboration to learn and decode human values from our society today. A、uh, lot of work have been done. I think since 2017, there are like over 100 guidelines and principles and those documents issued on ethical standards for AI, just for AI. And the EU and Chinese government, recently United States government, also issued some kind of guideline for ethical AI or responsible AI. Now, going from guideline to actual system, there's also a gap. Like, how do you implement guideline? So, say all the systems need to be fair. It cannot do harm. Like, let's just take these two. But what is fair? So, there's a debate about whether it's、uh, same outcome for everybody is fair or. Equitable outcome for everybody. That's a human society debate. Like, should we have affirmative action or not? What is fair? It's a human society question. So once we have those questions, and then people can come to agreement, which we don't always. If people can come to agreement of some of this, then we can talk about how we implement that into the systems. Today, I think if you talk to any company,、uh, when you ask what responsible AI is, it includes. And、uh, not limited to fairness,、uh, robustness, and safety,、uh, user agency, security, and privacy preserving. These are like the pillars. Nobody disagree with that. But how do you execute? Earlier, you mentioned that language models might cause privacy concerns. So there are people who are actively working on preventing security and privacy, and there are other people working on safety. So what is safety? There's intended. Harm done by the user of AI systems. There's unintended harm that's generated by AI systems, say through hallucinations. So these kind of different. So you identify different harms and you come up with different mitigation methods and how to measure and how to mitigate. So there's a lot of work. You know, there are a lot of people who have been working on how to detect bias, how to mitigate bias, all kinds of approaches. So again, there's a conference like the ACM Fact. Is one of these conferences. Our RAI summit will be another conference that combines the research engineering of RAI. So I hope in time, all AI is AI, right? We don't have to talk about RAI. We don't have to say there's a responsible AI and then there's the other AI. No, all AI should be RAI. So I think the idea is that this is a new field of research again and development. How to make AI more responsible? Once we have like mature measurement and metrics and tools and platforms, and then we can say like the whole paradigm of AI R and D should be responsible AI. So this is where we're going. We're only beginning. We're only starting. You mentioned that there is also different culture, and this different culture have different views on human value and ethics. 
and sometimes this view may be even like uh, antagonic. So how can we decide which human value we have to integrate into AI system? And should it be maybe like a culture specific AI system? Could it be a solution? So today, there are two, two answers I can give you. One is that uh, if you talk about deploy systems, applications, depending on the user group, the user target, these systems have to comply with local regulations and laws, number one. So whether it's EU regulation, EU law, or the Chinese regulation, Chinese law, US regulation, US law, it has to be compliant. That's for sure. Now, uh, so that's not even cultural. I mean, all these laws were informed by the cultural context, of course, but now once they become law, you have to do that. For example, recently Chinese government mandated that all recommendation systems must give user a, a way of turn it off. Okay, that's the Chinese law. Chinese companies have to comply with that. It doesn't apply to other markets like EU. So do you need to do that? If you're not a Chinese company deploying in the non-Chinese market, you probably don't have to. In that way, it's like what Chinese consider priority. And then you have the very stringent GDPR, right? The EU uh, data privacy law. But you know, that's my other side of the answer to you, which is that irrespective of the actual cultural context, there's a global conversation going on. So when EU came out with this data privacy law, it's very stringent. Actually, all other governments more or less follow that. So in the way that EU law made privacy to be one of the most dominant concerns among, right? Privacy, everybody agrees in EU is the most dominant concern. That came from the European cultural context. And then it also informed the laws in other jurisdictions, other cultures. So it is privacy is also super important in the Chinese context. And uh, maybe you've seen the news recently that Chinese internet company, I won't name, that was sanctioned and fined a great deal of money by the Chinese government because violation of user data privacy. Before you would say, oh, Chinese culture don't really respect privacy that much. You know, our parents check our emails and so on. But in terms of internet and this internet data, Chinese also has a very, very stringent privacy law that's informed by the GDPR. Right. So on one hand, there's cultural contest. On the other hand, there's a global influence, like a global agreement. There's a multinational effort to reach an agreement on these standards. Why? It's not because uh, everybody wants to be nice to the other countries. It just it makes trading easier. So all these products that need to be global in the global market, globalization makes it inevitable that different culture needs to communicate and reach an agreement when it comes to standards for technology, and in particular standards for AI as a result. But that requires some of a human empathy. Like you need to ask why they come up with such guidelines, right? EU and Chinese and so on. So it helps to be culturally informed when you are working as regulators or as policymakers, lawmakers. And then they need to learn about this kind of cross-cultural tensions and uh, differences and similarities. So as someone who's worked in both Asia and in the US and Europe, what do you think that we can learn from each other in the way we approach ethics? I think we're already learning from each other because AI ethics is a global conversation. Every expert group I've been to, there are people from Asia, from Europe, from North America, from Africa and uh, South America and so on. 
which is really nice to see. So we are already having a, a multinational, multi-stakeholder conversation on AI ethics, and we are learning from each other. EU tends to be the first one that come up with concrete regulations in AI, just because they started working on it earlier, faster, and sooner. And they put a lot of effort into that because EU as a regulatory body, they have to do regulation on all sorts of things, you know, tea manufacturing, for example, and all sorts of, so they already have a regulatory body that does that kind of thing all the time. So they started working on AI ethics regulation earlier than anybody else. But today, you know, they invited me there. So they were interested in different perspectives. So today we have a global conversation, which is very encouraging. And the Chinese are always learning from the West, I should say. This is what I can see. They are always eager to learn from the West uh, in terms of this AI ethics and thinking. And they invite a lot of Western experts to talk. I don't see a lot of invitation of Chinese experts <laughs> in the Western forums. And I always see representatives from different cultures in these conversations. So it's very encouraging. Okay, thank you for this very nice discussion on ethics. So now we're going to switch a bit to the next topic, which is academia. So as we mentioned in your introduction, you have an impressive career. And we would like to ask you if you had a special reference uh, you look up to, or even someone who guide you in your first steps. There are so many people. I think the most important person was my PhD advisor, obviously. She's very well known in AI, a leader in computer generation of text. Her name is Kathy McEwen. She's a visionary, right? She could see what other topics that's worth pursuing and, and what are the problems that people want to solve. And she taught me to be myself. Uh, when I was a PhD student, this was like 25 to 30 years ago, there were not many women role models in our field. And I think the fact that she was my advisor made, made a huge impact as a woman. At the beginning, I didn't think so. I just thought, you know, as a young woman, you always think like, oh, you know, engineering is gender blind. Of course it wasn't. It's not. But at the time, I just thought it was not going to make any difference whether she was a woman or not. I chose her as my advisor and she chose me as her advisee, not because of our gender. I chose her as an advisor because she was a leader in AI, in NLP, and so on. But then I learned, I benefited from her mentoring as a woman, a leader, to just be myself. That's not easy because when you don't have a lot of role models in your gender, you think you have to change yourself to be in a different way, to be more like the guys or whatever. Because, you know, I came, not only I'm a woman, I came from an artistic family. My way of thinking, my way of research is always me a little odd. Like, I know people always say that, like, I always do weird research. Like, I do things that has not done before and it's not popular and stuff. But my advisor always encouraged me. And she, always, she taught me, actually, that to go where nobody has gone before is how you make impact. Don't be afraid to do things that nobody has done before. And don't do incremental research. Just be yourself. When you do presentations, when you talk, when you communicate with people, be yourself. When you say what you think, there's no need to uh, sort of mitigate your gender because that's the whole person, right? I, I don't need to emphasize I'm a woman either. It's just my whole person. This is who I am. So my experience as a woman in STEM is different from the experience of a man in STEM. You know, there's no need to mitigate that experience to take advantage of that, but also, also to encourage other women to work with other women. 
and so on. So that was a very significant influence. Of course, as a woman mentor, she tended to give me also more personal advice as would a male mentor. Like I, I wouldn't talk to a male mentor about a lot of my personal issues, but I felt comfortable talking to a woman about it. So that was also important, I think. So today for women students, I also observed that among my students, both men and women students tend to tell me about their personal challenges. And I hear from my colleagues that like the male colleagues don't actually get those kind of questions from their mentees, whether it's men or women. So, hey, I think that's great. Like if they find that their advisors, they can go to ask for personal advice, that's great, you know, more diversity, right? So I think that's great. So that contributed towards my development as a whole person, not just as a researcher, my choices in life and so on. So she's really, really important. And she remains my mentor today, right? I would catch up with her once in a while. And then she always asked me about my personal side of things. And I always trust her advice and so on. So she's one of the most important people. And also I was lucky at the time, the beginning of statistical NLP. And I was working at Bell Labs uh, with a researcher called Ken Church, who was also my, on my thesis committee. Ken was also somebody who is still somebody who most people consider to be odd, says what he thinks and critical of other people's work. But at the time, we were doing something that nobody else did. Like very few people were doing, which is statistical NLP. And my advisor, both Ken and Kathy, encouraged me. And that was also important that not only they encouraged me to do something nobody did before, they provided the funding the environment to do that. And then Bell Labs in the 90s, early 90s, late 80s was just a wonderful environment. You know, so many pioneers there and they influenced me, you know, my fellow PhD students, so many people. I, I can't, I, I don't know how to list them all, but I, I feel like I've also learned a lot from my own students. And I continue to learn from my own students. I have students, they teach me like Python programming or not PyTorch programming, right? So for advisors, you know, we, we do so many things. We might not be in touch with the latest and the most hands-on side of AI implementation and AI um, research. So I also learned that through my students. Yeah, thank you for the great and nice answer and also for the great advice. Uh, we also have this question, like many students are joining the industry after finishing their degrees. And as someone who have like a very successful career in academia, can you tell us why you should choose academia instead of industry? I tell my own students, I think it's good to have industry experience either through internship. Because when I was a PhD student, I also interned at Bell Labs. So because industry experience gives you, today especially, gives you the resources, the machines, the data, database, all kinds of resources you don't get in university to do your work. So it's good to have industry experience, either as an internship or work for a year or two in the industry. And then some people are just happy staying in industry, right? Some people just don't ever want to deal with grant proposals. They don't want to like have to supervise students. If they're happy, they should stay in industry. But there are others who really want to be professors. Then I will encourage them to work in industry for a couple of years and then become professors. And, and I know some of my students, that's their plan. Right? After a few years in the industry with the experience and with the boost in their research profile, they become professors. It widens your perspective. 
right? So then you can become prof professor. And even me as a professor, I always collaborated with companies. I always did startups. So I was never completely shut out from the industry, right? Because it informs our research. So it is possible to have both. And today, a lot of professors work with the industry, like me and many other professors, consultants for the industry too, right? So you can do both. Another facet of research and one that you seem to excel at, uh, as we've seen through the whole uh, interview, is communication and communicating ideas with non-experts, I guess. And you've talked to policymakers at the UN and at the World Economic Forum. So we wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little bit more about these experiences and also tell us what is needed to successfully communicate technical challenges with non-expert listeners? So even with experts, we need communication skills, I would say, right? Even going to conferences to present your ideas, writing a paper, you need communication skills. And there I would credit my advisors. Again, Kathy and Ken, they are great storytellers. They're both great communicators. I remember first when I started out as a PhD student, the kind of papers I was writing and the kind of advice they gave me, it was just how to tell the story. What is the core claim? That's part of my PhD training. I have to credit my advisors. They are the ones who train me. And I try to train uh, my students the same way. And I think you can tell that today, PhD students are supposed to train to communicate well through writing and through presentations. And I would advise students in general how to learn that is to look at the presentations of the great communicators in our field, right? You, you watch a lot of things online today. Some people are good, some people are not good, you know, and just learn and learn how to tell stories. Another thing is I think people who are not just narrowly engineers, who also have interest in literature, like people who have an in additional interest in literature, in writing in general, who can write in general, uh, they tend to be better communicators. Kathy, she could read, she could write. I remember the very first time she asked me to write a literature review. Two months after I became a student, I wrote three pages and she said, you can write. And that's super important. I, nobody told me that before. I really don't realize what she was guiding me. Because the way we write, the way we communicate also influence the way we think. The language we speak shapes the way we think and vice versa. So learning how to communicate is super important. Learning how to communicate what is the hypothesis and the claim of your paper is super important because then when you work, you're looking for the claim and you're looking for the hypothesis, right? I think that's what PhD advisors try to train their students for. And out of this experience where you communicate with non-experts, do we have any interesting stories that you want to share with us? So uh, I remember this, uh, so at some forum recently, I was on the forum talking about AI ethics with a philosopher and a priest. We were talking about AI ethics and so on. And it just dawned on me. And that conversation actually became very, very fruitful because we actually understood each other at the end. Uh, what do I mean by that? It just dawned on me that a lot of the terms we use in AI, just the term artificial intelligence, the word intelligence, uh, the terms like natural language understanding or facial recognition. Like we use a lot of this kind of humanistic terms. They are actually technical terms. So I was thinking that if we go back to the core technical terms that we use, instead of saying understanding, we say encoding or decoding. Instead of saying empathetic machines, it's my fault, I use that term. 
we can use some other terms, right? If we use like really, really technical terms, I think we then won't have this misunderstanding about sentient. Because I think, because we use all these words in a metaphorical way, right? We use them as metaphors, understanding as a metaphor, because we don't have other terms, but we actually have like encoding, decoding, and so on. If we use those form terms, then they become obtuse, like they become obscure. You cannot explain to lay people what we're doing on one hand. Um, they become terms like in wireless communications, they use terms that nobody can understand. So on one hand, you avoid all this kind of misunderstanding because the philosopher think of understanding in a totally different way. The priest thinks of understanding in another different way. So we actually communicate with words that are polysemous, that words that are loaded with different meanings. And uh, we need to be very, very careful about the audience we're communicating to uh, when you use certain words. And uh, I think to be a good communicating, you need to put yourself in the shoes of your audience. It helps to understand their language, where they are coming from. Your communication is better. Before you send a message, you formulate a message in terms of the receiver, instead of just being the sender of the message. If you can do it in a way that's most efficient for a receiver, that's the best way of communicating. It's not the most efficient way for you. Okay, I also learned this throughout my startup experience. Like once a salesperson told me, you don't talk to clients as if you want to express your own way. You have to talk to clients so they understand they want to buy your product. Same thing. When you communicate to non-experts, you need to formulate a message in the way that they can receive most efficiently. So it helps to understand where they come from. It helps to learn their language, not just their particular language, English or Chinese or French or whatever, but their technical language, their technical terms. So for me to talk to a philosopher, I need to study philosophy to some extent, which I try. So when you talk to a banker, you need to learn their language. So there were a lot of misunderstanding at the beginning, like uh, when I start talking to non-experts and I, after a while, learned their language to communicate better. Does that make sense? So learning the language of the non-experts and then the best way to communicate is you, if you are their expert, right? So, okay, the funny story. I can tell the funny story. I remember when I was uh, in school in like, I was in Japan, I had a fellow Korean student told me the best English he's heard is the English of the Korean airline stewardesses. You know, flight attendants for Korean airlines speak the best English. Why? Because he can understand them the best. And I remember like recently, I just traveled back from Spain, back to France and then back to Hong Kong. But like, I, I speak French fluently. I struggle with Spanish. I can communicate, but it's not, I'm not fluent. So I remember like I spent two weeks in the south of Spain struggling with the Andalusian accent. And on the flight back to Paris, I suddenly heard a very, very nice way of speaking Spanish because the, the person speaking Spanish has a very heavy French accent. I thought I could understand everything. You know, so we tend to understand a foreign language in our own accent better. So this is the same thing, right? For your receiver of your message, they understand it better if you use their language to communicate. That counts as a funny story, right? It counts, yes, yes. Thank you. And thank you for sharing those stories with us. So uh, now, if you're okay with it, we would like to move on to questions that are a little, just a little bit more personal, but they're very lighthearted. I don't know if you're aware of this, but our previous guest in the podcast was John Hansen, who many people know for his research and his role as the president of ISCA, the International Speech yeah. Communication Association. Yeah. Being a dancer himself, we asked him 
who were the best dancers at ISCA events. And he said that you were probably one of the best dancers and told us that you dance flamenco. So you've already mentioned that you danced. Can we ask you what got you into dancing still and why flamenco? Ooh, okay. Uh, why I got into dancing? I started dancing when I started walking, I think. I loved to dance when I was very young. Whenever there's music, I will dance. I remember... I think I was in kindergarten, maybe three or four. I would make up my own choreography. I was in a boarding kindergarten okay, in China, in Shanghai. So there was a teacher who was playing piano. She liked to improvise or whatever. She would play music. Whenever she played music, I would dance, like an elaborate choreography. I didn't know. I just lo I loved to dance. And then when they told me to show it to visitors, that's when I realized, oh, Actually, it's not so bad, but I didn't care. You know, I was a kid. So I've been dancing since I was very young. When I was in elementary school in China, those days, all those performance schools like stay owned, right? So they will go and pick kids to send to different schools, sports schools, dance schools or whatever. And I was always picked to go to dance schools, but then I could never go because of political reasons in China. That's another story of my family background. But I was picked to go. So I always loved dancing. So I don't know where that came from. Maybe my family, my mother loves dancing. Her whole, whole family loves dancing. Today I see my kids. My, one of my daughters loves dancing. It's in our blood. So flamenco, flamenco. How did I get into flamenco? I can tell you the precise moment. When I was 11, I watched flamenco on TV. I saw that was just the most amazing dance I'd ever seen. Before then, I'd seen all kinds of dance. I did a lot of dance, classical dance, Chinese dance, folk dance. You know, my mom was a ballroom dance coach. So I didn't think of it as something I could do myself um, because it's very, very hard. It's a performance dance. And I still cannot say I can do it. I'm still learning. I'm always learning, perennially learning. And then when I was living in France, or in Paris as a student, there was a dance school, like there was flamenco school downstairs from where I lived in the Marais district of Paris. I watched people learn dance there. Then I knew, oh, there's a concept of you can learn flamenco. But I didn't, I was very intimidated. So I didn't do it. I didn't start until I went to, you know, in the early 90s, when I became a graduate student in New York. There was a dance school in New York where there were flamenco teachers. That's when I started. So that was also a long time ago, but still that's how I started. Later on, then I realized there's a reason. So flamenco dance and music, it's not just about the dance, it's the music, right? It belongs uh, to a group of music that's different from the mainstream Western music. Okay, I'm not going to this theory, but it's related to like Mid-Eastern music and Indian music and so on. It came from like the gypsies in India, right? So there's a documentary on that evolution of flamenco music. So not just the dance, but the music. And the dance is influenced by Indian dance. Turns out Indian dance, right, influenced a lot of dance in the region, not just like flamenco, it influenced all the dance in Southeast Asia, including Indonesian Javanese dance and, and Balinese dance. And my mother is a Javanese dancer. She was born in Indonesia, she was a Javanese dancer. Although she never taught me Javanese dance. I've never seen her dance in my life. Uh, Javanese. I saw her dancing other things. But I think this is where her love of dance came from. My love of dance came from. Just sort of it all came together. So I also learned Balinese dance. and But it's all that group of dance, not the more classical mainstream, that kind of dance. But of course, I learned salsa in New York, 
clubs and stuff. So, but that's, that's a lot of people did that. New York, I would say, that's where I got to learn all kinds of dances. That's really personal. Nobody ever asked that question. We like to ask and to really learn a lot. You know, Alex Athero from Apple. We actually uh, did a Sevillanas at uh, one of the ICAS in Louisiana. I told him to practice on his own. And then we rehearsed when we met at ICAS. And then we did a performance of Sevillanas. And Alex learned to dance that when he was young. He's Spanish. That's really cool. Uh, I think that it was actually that specific performance that John Hansen mentioned that he saw you. Really? I thought he mentioned when I danced with him. Okay. I, I think he was saying that he watched you dance. Probably he also enjoyed when he danced with you. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm He's sure. He's professional. Okay, so now as previous episode, we would like to go through a round of very short questions for you to answer without much thought. Uh, what we call our famous lightning interview. So some questions will have two scenarios for you to choose from, while others are just open-ended. So are you ready? So I have to answer right away, right? Yeah. You ready? Uh-huh. Okay. So we heard that you created an electronic and an astronomy club in high school. It sounds like a lot. And is there a club that you haven't found or you didn't manage to? In high school? Yeah. Um, philosophy club. Would you rather be abducted by aliens or abduct one alien? Oh. Uh, abducted by. I don't know why, but if you have to have to choose one art form to teach humanity to a robot or <gasps> even an alien, what oh, would it be? No, that's hard. No, I cannot answer that question. Okay, I'm gonna anger my parents. Dance because they have music also. So you speak seven languages. Other than your mother tongue, which is your favorite language to speak? My favorite? Yes. My favorite language, uh, other than my mother tongue, oops, this is going to be very discriminatory. A lot of people will be very angry. Um, French. Because it has enough nuance. It's ambiguous enough. You know, it has the same kind of ambiguity or polysemous meaning to a single word as Chinese does. And uh, I can use it to express certain feelings better that I have without using too many words. And is there a language that you wish you hadn't spent the time to learn? Wish I had or had not? Had not. I wish I spent more time on German. I didn't yeah. spend enough time. And okay. which language do you wish to learn next? I wish to perfect my Spanish and Italian because it's not good. I wish to improve my Hindi because I just started learning and it's not good. And I wish to learn uh, Bahasa Indonesian because it is my mother's language and I never learned. Okay, so um, if you had to speak a different language with yourself, your children, your pets, and the conversational agents, which language would you choose for which? You need to choose one language for each. It's easy. With the conversation agent, English. With my children, Chinese, because I want them to improve Chinese. And what's the other one? Uh, with yourself. Myself. When you're thinking. My daughter asked me the same question. I speak all kinds of languages to myself. 
depending on the context, the mood. I just speak mixed language to myself. It's all mixed. So you have said that you have been a very like big fan of science fiction from a young age. So what is your favorite science fiction book and movie? So many. I like science fiction that's very rigorous. To me, there's good sci-fi and there's bad sci-fi. I don't like sci-fi that's not self-coherent. Do you know what I mean? Like it creates a world, it has to be rigorous. So like the Philip Dick's novels and the movies based on it, like Blade Runner, I love because it's very coherent. And then there are many others. I can tell you what I don't like. I don't like her. I don't like Ex Machina because it touches on what I do and it's just not coherent. There's just too many holes. So I don't like them. Those are movies. If you could be any sci-fi character, who would you be? Sci-fi or fantasy? Sci-fi. Um, if I can be any character in the sci-fi, I would want to be an android or replicant. So because, for example, the superhero stuff is fantasy, not sci-fi to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So final question. Would you rather have a robot or a star named after you? Oh, a star. So this is like a psychological analysis, right? What, what's my personality now? I don't know. Exactly. We'll, we'll have exactly. to, to give it to some website to find the answer. <laughs> uh, so that's the end of our lightning interviews. Thank you for playing along with us. We have a final question. If you could choose any researcher and ask him or her anything, what it would be and who it would be? Dead person or alive? Dead or alive. Um, to have a conversation with Feynman, the physicist. I remember he said something about not reading, ask him the question, the sort of questions you asked me. How does his uh, creative side impact his research and how, how does he get the ideas? And I mean, just to share, seems like a fun person. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Pascal. So this question wrapped up the interview. Thank you for the wonderful conversation. Thank you for your wonderful insights. Also, uh, thanks for everyone who is listening to this episode of Speech Pitch. Stay tuned for future episodes as we might interview your favorite speech researcher. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. Speech Pitch by Iska Sack.